to Nannyog's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Nigel. This is episode 20, Hogfather. All right, so poor Nigel is coming to us with COVID, one yeah. of the infected. How are you feeling, Nigel? Uh, I'm okay. I like. I mean, I had tested earlier on in the week because I was feeling under the weather, and I got a negative test. And so I was like, oh, well, it must just be the fact that I got caught in, like, a heavy downpour, and I just have a cold. Mm. And then today I took an antigen test, and I got a positive one, and I was like, oh, for fuck... Like, getting COVID in 2022 is just embarrassing. I'm embarrassed <laughs> for myself. I don't think you should be embarrassed. It's... We're definitely in the middle of a surge here in the U.S., so I... Yeah, also here in Ireland. It's very easy to get COVID still. In exciting continuing news from a bit of this show, do you know who I saw live in concert last Monday? I saw on Twitter, but why don't you tell our listeners? Ooh, ooh I look just like Buddy Holly. It was Weezer! How was seeing Weezer live? It was an experience. I was having, like, a very bad anxiety attack because I was, like, massively late to the gig thanks to public transport. And they were playing a venue that seats 40,000 people, but they had only one entrance. That seems like poor planning. Yeah. So I got there, like, over an hour from when it was meant to start. And obviously they had realized that this was a bad thing that was happening. And so then they were like, oh, well, I guess will just delay it slightly. So when I got there nearly an hour and a half after it started, Weezer was only on like the second song of their set. So I got to hear them play Buddy Holly. Yeah, I missed my favorite Weezer song though, which is uh, all my favorite songs. Uh, That's the name of the song. Okay. But yeah, it was really good. Were you thinking about the bit while you were listening to Buddy Holly? Yeah, because originally we were meant to record it the weekend before, so I was going to say, guess who I'm going to see? And then say, ooh, ooh. They covered both Enter Sandman by Metallica and Africa by Toto. Okay, first of all, Weezer has some pretty good covers. Their cover game is strong, but that is such a diverse selection of songs. Like, those are songs that I would not normally think of in the same sentence. And then Fall Out Boy came on afterwards, and Patrick Stump played a piano that was on fire. I've seen Fall Out Boy live. They really like playing with fire at their live shows. And then they sang Save Rock and Roll, and they didn't bring Elton John, even though Elton John is like played like last night in Dublin, so they could have arranged something. So Patrick just did an Elton John impression. That's really funny. I love that. Yeah. So Hogfather, am I right? Speaking of Hogfathers, so Hogfather is the 20th Discworld novel, It was released in 1996, and it came in 137th place in The Big Read, which was a BBC survey of the most loved British books of all time, making it one of 15 books by Pratchett in the top 200. It was also nominated in 1997 for a British Fantasy Award, so this was a big deal when it came out. There is one adaptation of Hogfather. It's a two-part television film. I've seen this one. That came out in 2006. You have seen this film. Yeah, it was on the- With Ian Richardson and David Jason. Yeah. It's not great. It is not my favorite. It's good for a seven-year-old. 
Yeah. Mark Warren, Michelle Dockery, a bunch of different people. And Terry Pratchett has a brief cameo as the toy maker. Hmm. There, there's some of that going on there, but despite its cast, I still don't think it's very good. Yeah. I'm sorry if there's any diehard TV film Hogfather fans out there. I do know that there are some people who watch it every year for Christmas, which I think is funny. Yeah. I was going to say, have we read any of the other of those 15 books by Pratchett that are in the top 200? Have we covered any of them so far? That is a really great question. Because obviously it's later than when Hogfather was published. So it could probably include Snuff, which, as we've mentioned, you know, has like a lo- won a load of awards. Let me see. Okay, Mort is number 65. Okay, we, we did that one. Not a Discworld book, but Good Omens is 68. Okay. Guards, Guards is 69. Nightwatch is 73, so we haven't read that one yet. Yeah. Color of Magic is 93. Okay. Scrolling down. Small Gods is 102. That's a strange one. Yeah, that is a strange one. Reaper Man is 126. Weird Sisters is 135. Okay. Hogfather is 137. Men at Arms is 148. Soul Music is 151. Thief of Time is 152. So we haven't read that one yet. Fifth Elephant is 153. So we haven't read that one either. The Truth is 193. And Witches Abroad is 197. So we haven't read four out of the 15, but we've read most of them. Yeah. It's a strange thing that Small Gods is higher than Reaper Man and Men at Arms. Like, it's so high on that list of 15. Yeah, I would have definitely put Men at Arms and uh, Feet of Clay isn't even on there. And that's one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's one of the best ones. I am really glad that they had Thief of Time and Nightwatch on there because I also think those are some top tier Pratchett books and and Nightwatch was pretty far up there as well so yeah that was good all right quick summary when the auditors conspire to assassinate the Hogfather on Hogswatch Eve no less it is up to death to step into his boots and deliver presents to all the children on the disc but with all the spare belief left over from the Hogfather's disappearance new household gods are popping up and things are getting a little weird It's going to require the talents of Death's granddaughter, Susan, a team of wizards, a rat, uh, and a raven to figure out what happened to Hogfather and save Hogswatch. So what were your first thoughts on this novel, Nigel? I think if you put a gun to my head and asked me to explain this, the, like, basic setup of the plot, I, first of all, don't think I could, and second of all, I don't think anyone would believe me. (laughs) Like, if you consider it in the abstract, it's like, oh, the people who who control reality want to kill Santa Claus, so they hire a man who, like, he hire, they hire a man who's basically the Corinthian from the Sandman comics, <laughs> and then he does the deed, but then he can't be killed by death because he lives in a world which is in basically children's 
dreamland, essentially, where death doesn't exist. So death has to rope in his granddaughter, and then you're you've at that stage you've just pieced out. You're like, what? At that point, it's just kind of absurd if you're just listening to a basic plot summary. It's weird. It's like the Sandman meets uh, Nosferatu by Joe Hill. Yeah, I could see that with a little bit of Nightmare Before Christmas sprinkled over it. That was something that I definitely got vibes of from this, especially from Death's performance as Hogfather. I definitely got some Jack Skellington vibes. Yeah, he's Jack Skellington, and then it's the the Corinthian takes the place of Charlie Manx. I do like this one. There's a lot. Uh, there's a lot of pop culture. I think that this touches on, although a lot of it has kind of come after the fact. So possibly inspired by Hogfather and because it's such a big book, it would make sense. Yeah. I mean, it. this is definitely one of those books that I feel like a lot of people refer to when they refer to Terry Pratchett. And it it's in keeping with something that he'd been doing for the last few books, which are to base a book around a theme, right? Soul music was around like rock and roll and you know, like the different witches books are like around opera and Shakespeare. And so this one is around essentially Christmas. Like Hogs Watch is like the Christmas holiday or yeah. the the mid, the, the winter holiday, basically, whatever you want to describe it as. But I think it's closer to Christmas than another holiday, perhaps at the same time. I am really curious to know what you think of the Discworld institution of Hogs Watch. There was a lot in this book about that kind of thing because it kind of deals with the fact that Christmas has kind of moved away from being a religious holiday, you know, like the birth of Jesus Christ to being nearly a secular holiday. And then obviously it's now veered into like ultra gross consumer capitalism. Well, I was going to say it's also deconstructing a lot of like Chris, classic Christmas stories that we tell, like those heartwarming, you know, types of stories like The Little Match Girl and Good King Wenceslas. Like those are stories that happen in this, but the book itself is trying to deconstruct them and be like, is this really as heartwarming as you think it is? You know, like, is this really something that should make you feel good to listen to? to a story about us a little girl dying in the cold or a really selfish king giving food away to a peasant once a year yeah i definitely think that's the most emotionally engaging part of the book when you get down to it because like albert says at one stage oh dear masters in another one of his funny moods again and that's where he's like interfering in human affairs but like one of the moments that really got to me was that little match girl moment you know, why not turn up before an angel has quite a large carrying capacity? And then when he's told, well, he can't do that. Well, the Hogfather can. The Hogfather gives presents. There's no better present than a future. Right. It is interesting that Death sees the role of the Hogfather as a way to do things that he would normally not be able to do as Death. Like, he is obviously really bad as the Hogfather in a lot of ways. But he does understand what the role of the Hogfather is in the story, right? This kind of goes back to, like, witches abroad, right? Like, there are power in stories. Stories want to happen a certain way. And, 
he understands that he has, as the Hogfather, in this role as the Hogfather, that he has a different kind of power than he does as Death. Ah, but we are not in the world, said Death. We are in the special congruent reality created for the Hogfather. Normal rules have to be suspended. How else could anyone get around the entire world in one night? So Death gets to play around a little bit with the rules here, which I'm sure drives the auditors mad because they historically have not been great about watching Death bend or break rules. Yeah, but I think as well, it gets into a lot of the discussion we had in like small gods and pyramids and about like the nature of orthodox religion i think christmas is a good staging ground for this because like not to give dan brown credit for anything really but and also <laughs> just on a <laughs> just on a side note i would um recommend if you can finding the review that someone did of one of his books i think it was inferno which is written in the same style that Dan Brown writes books, and the review is called Please Do Not Make Fun of Renowned Author Dan Brown. <laughs> but he points out that, like, Christmas is... Like, Christmas and a lot of Christian traditions are kind of like holdovers or have adopted slash cannibalized parts of pagan or earlier indigenous religions to sort of make the crossover and conversion process more palatable to you know mm. indigenous and native people uh and like even in ireland there's a really clear example of the fact that the first of february we have saint bridget's day and saint bridget's day is just a takeover of Bridget's day who is a pagan goddess on the feast of imbolc and so that's a thing that's kind of only really in ireland and the british isles kind of making saint bridget's crosses and stuff it's a holdover from pagan days but there's a quote that like re just when we're on about like death having a specific way that he can do things as the hogfather that he can't as death so there's a quote that's like you know why things are the way they are the shape of death was the shape people had created for him over the centuries why bony because bones were associated with death he got a scythe because agricultural people could spot a decent metaphor and he lived in a somber land because the human imagination would be rather stretched to let him live somewhere nice with flowers but it's like you know, we have a cultural conception of what death is, and we have a cultural conception of what Santa Claus is now, you know, who's also, like, an evolution of, like, you know, Sinterklaas and all kinds of other slightly pagan-leaning figures. Which this book digs into. It does actually dig into some of the more pagan roots of Hogswatch and the Hogfather as, you know, central to this holiday. Like, they go into the whole thing about you know, killing killing the person who found the bean in their food to make the sun come up. Like, the idea that, like, this holiday is actually about sacrifice and it is actually about blood, you know, to make sure that the sun yeah. comes up. And it's a feast, you know, in order to celebrate, like, that winter turnaround, right? The winter solstice. So I'm not sure if the solstice actually works the same way on the disc, but that is what it is referring to when it's talking about, like, making the sun come back up again. And then this kind of like really brought into focus with the good King Wenceslas parallel. And obviously then that's more into the class consciousness type aspect of um, the watch books and like that kind of moral, not necessarily equation, but you know, like naughty and nice said death, but it's easy to be nice if you're rich. Is this fair? 
Yeah, and they like drive the king out, and then uh, Albert makes sure that Death gives the the old man what he actually wants, which is not like swans and stuff. It's like mostly pork based, which I thought was yeah. really great. The other thing too is that there's like a bit of a capitalist satire in the middle of the book when Death goes to the mall, the M A U L, and gives out presents. Uh, Mr. Crumley, the the person who's in charge of this, who makes it all look nice and uses it as a way to sell presents, you know, to to children because they beg their parents to take them to go see Hogfather. And then, of course, when Death shows up and starts giving them actually what they want, and it's not the merchandise that the mall is selling, like there's this big collapse of like this capitalist idea of what Hog's Watch is. So, what did you think about that particular satire? I mean, I think it's a really good satire, but I'll, like, I think it's also very funny. Um, one of the few moments from the Discworld yes. outside of what I had read in the Tiffany Aching books was the death giving the child a sword because you had mentioned it before. <laughs> that whole scene, you know, where it's like, "Well, I've given you a pony and I've put it in your bedroom," and it's like, "You didn't really do that, no." And I put it in her kitchen. <laughs> It's a really nice contrast between, because we get more of Nobby in this book. Yeah, we get a cameo of Nobby Nobbs, who at first is a little incensed by the idea of a hogfather giving away things, because he never got things as a child. Yeah, and it kind of reinforces this notion that the Watch, or at least in its infancy, kind of drew together all these like slightly broken people, you know, where... Even though Nobby is the descendant and of, you know, kind of nobility and he's the rightful um, Earl of Ankh-Morpork, isn't it? He's the Earl. Well, that's kind of called into question at the end of Feet of Clay of whether he's actually the Earl or not. He has the ring. Yeah. We don't he know if he stole ring. it or not. <laughs> yeah. In theory, he's in theory, he has like upper class roots. But even then, like he's kind of left out of it nearly like you know forgotten and like abandoned child and then he says well even if he had gotten the rocking horse he wanted you know it would have been sold to buy alcohol or something was it we didn't talk about this in feet of clay but if you look at the conversation between vimes and nobby at the beginning of feet of clay when vimes is telling him or is asking him about his father Nobby describes a pretty bleak childhood, a very abusive childhood as well. Like he says, the only thing my mm. father really left me was this ring and this pain in my arm whenever the weather changes. So, you know, so he's Nobby, quite clearly broken his arm. Yeah. So Nobby has a a pretty, pretty bad memories of his childhood. And so, like, it it makes sense that he would those memories would be triggered by seeing all of these like quote unquote happy children. Cause we know that children who look happy aren't always happy, but you know, quote unquote happy children being given things, you know, by the hog father when he didn't get anything. And, you know, that just reminds him of how his father would have, would have stolen his presence if there was anything of value. And I suppose then the, like the true gift that he gets from the hog father is reconciling his past with like, belief that there can be hope for other children you know mm -hmm. that kind of idea that well i felt like this but i'm going to do my best to make sure no one else feels like this 
And then we get the right. flashback where Death is the one who tells the toy maker that Nobby is stuck to the window. Oh, that's Albert. That's, is it? That's different. Yeah, Albert is the one oh. stuck to the window. Nobby, I can't remember what Nobby wanted, but he gets the bow, the crossbow. Oh, yeah. I don't know, I had that conflated in my head as two reconciliations. Yeah. No, both um, Albert and Nobby had bad childhoods. Yeah. Well, then, it, this this just feels more of my, my death and Albert as, like, a queer platonic pair. <laughs> I was wondering what you thought about Albert's part as the pixie of Hogwatch. I mean, he is in the suspended time of Hogswatch Night, so he can't die, you know, considering he has the 17 seconds of life left. I, I, was, I knew you were worried about that. I am worried about him. He's my emotional support, old man. <laughs> what did you think of Albert's role? I liked it because, I, I, like, I like the dichotomy between them. The death is so full of hope and optimism, and he's like, well, things are this, like, there's a, where is it now? There's something where they're saying, um, I meant this is how it's supposed to go, Master, said Albert. No, you mean this is how it goes. So, like, death is so committed to changing things for the better, even though that's not necessarily feasible. And we, you know, as you've said, we see this when Albert has to make sure death gives the farmer what he actually wants or what he actually needs. Mm -hmm. And so having Albert as kind of the curmudgeonly sidekick, they're essentially like Thelma and Louise, except they don't die at the end. <laughs> I mean, I think that they balance each other quite a bit because you know, in classic death fashion, he's trying to understand something about humanity and he doesn't always get it right. Right. We see that at the mall. We see that, you know, with the ho, 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 you know, like the way he intones it instead of like actually laughing, you know, the way that he, you know, enters the buildings and, and gives the presence. It's, it's very like almost right, but not quite right in usual death fashion. But you almost want that when it comes to narratives like The Little Match Girl and King Wenceslas and capitalism. You want someone to come in and say, like, no, I don't understand this. This isn't how it's supposed to go. But Albert is the one who has to remind death about the practicality of class because death doesn't understand class, right? Death comes for everybody. You know, mm. he has to remind him of the practicality of like, well, if you do this, it's going to cause this to happen. Like, you know, do you want this to happen? So it is interesting to see how those two characters balance each other out. Yeah. What did you think about death as Hogfather? Like the jokes that were being made? I thought it was quite funny. Obviously, like the fact that he intones it, but even there's like slight, you know, like the, there's that slight sort of disparity between death and the hog father. But then when you get into like little things to do with Christmas where like death opens, like they're, they're having a bag of sweets and they say like, ah, humbugs, you know, as a nice <laughs> little nod to a Christmas carol. That made me laugh. Or when he asks the girl at the mall, he's like, and you will be good. This is part of the arrangement. And she's like, yes. And he goes, good. We have a contract. <laughs> Like, yeah. like he sees he sees what happens at Hogs Watch as like contract law, which I just thought was great. Yeah. And especially for someone whose whole business is like you don't make deals. Like we have 
oh, what's his name? Ypsilor the Red trying to outwith, outwith and bargain with death, you know, by like playing a game and then tricking him at the start of sorcery. And so then it was like, well, yes, this is all contracts. And we've entered a legally binding contract where I'll provide you my service. Whereas his service as death is like, well, we don't have a contract, but I'm here anyway. Right, exactly. So, and it is interesting too, like with the little match girl, how he's like, oh, what's next on the list? And Albert's like, actually, it's your other job, right? It's your job as death that you have to do now. And then of course, death is like, no, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of puns, or as Death calls them, poons or plays on words. <laughs> there's things like, he says, let's go slay them. There's also just like, like you said, there's tons of references to Christmas here. Like, yes, Twyla, there is a Hogfather is a, a reference to, yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. There's a um, reference to The Night Before Christmas by Clement St. Clark, uh, where they talk about the windows flung itself open with a clatter. Yeah, all through the house, one creature stirred. It was a mouse, which is like the opposite. Yeah. That's a tradition I we have in our house. Every year on Christmas Eve, we read that story, except it's gotten to the stage where now I kind of know it off by heart because I've been mm. doing it for like 22 years. Right. So, yeah. But it's a nice little tradition. Um the holiday traditions are just really fun, I think, especially like, you know, the family ones that you do every year. I mean, and you'd think they'd get old, but eventually I think you just kind of, you enjoy them. Yeah. Uh, and then that's kind of what this book is about, that like, you believe in them as nearly an institution as much as you do in Christmas or Hogswatch itself. And so, mm -hmm. you know, like, as they say, um, the amount of belief in the world must be subject to an upper limit. And but then you have when you have the surplus, where does it go? Right. Yeah. I mean, there is a way in which traditions can become ritualistic, right? And you could connect that to religion of some kind or to like pagan like sacrifices and so on. So instead of instead of sacrificing a person to make the sun come up, you leave out sherry and and uh, you know, what was it that he leaves out sherry and apples or sherry and I don't remember yeah. exactly what it is. It's milk and cookies over here that you leave out. In the 70s in England, my father's family left out a cigar and a pint of Guinness. <laughs> I'm sure Santa Claus would appreciate that. Yeah. I just like that there's <laughs> different things depending on who the Santa Claus is in the house. What is it, what is it that they say at the very beginning of the book? Uh, all stories in the beginning are eventually about blood. Like if you can connect like these like kind of benign traditions where we leave stuff out or we do certain things every year back to practices that actually are rooted in like these like primal things like sacrifice that the sun comes up. You know, it kind of it kind of comes back to that, you know, the thing you find out when you're young and where it's like, did you know Ring a Ring of Rosies is actually about the Black Death? Mm-hmm. I probably couldn't even go into all of the Christmas references in this. There's the, did you check the list? Yes, twice. Are you sure that's enough? The rat says you'd better watch out. I also really liked Rid Coley's version of the 12 Days of Christmas. On the second day of Hogwatch, I sent my true love back a nasty little letter. Ha, yes, and a partridge in a pear tree. 
Who is this true love and why are they sending me all these gifts? Don't they know I just wanted <laughs> just wanted a DVD? <laughs> uh I don't know the tradition behind that, but it's like why are they sending so many birds? Genuinely I want to know. Like what is the background to the twelve days of Christmas? Write us into the show and tell us, because I'm too sick to Google it. Yeah, please tell us. Why, why are there so many birds in the 12 Days of Christmas? I'm going to hazard a guess and say they're symbolic of things. Maybe. But I don't know that for a fact. That is just a educated guess on my part. Some of the other threads, because there's a lot of threads in this book, but I think before we talk about Susan, we should talk about the villains of this novel, which really are the auditors are the ones who are setting up everything. We've seen the auditors before in Reaper Man, and we will see them again. But they are kind of the bureaucrats of reality. They Death explains that they wish that life didn't exist because it's untidy and it's messy, and humans are the worst possible kind because they believe in things and that makes things true. And that's just too much. It's not quantifiable. And so the auditors hate that. And so they hire the Assassin's Guild to assassinate the Hogfather. And of course, the job is given to Tea Time or Te-e-time, as he <laughs> keeps trying to insist that his name is pronounced. And he is quite scary, I think. I think he might be one of the most frightening villains that we've seen so far. I genuinely, like, horrifying. You know, like, that scene where he's talking to the, the guy at the door... You know, who's trying to get, basically doing the, like, actually, what year was this released in relation to Die Hard? Because him trying to get into the vault feels very much like the Siege of Nakatomi Plaza in the original Die Hard. Like, like, he's Hans Gruber. I think it was much later. Yeah, Die Hard is 88, and this was 96, so almost 10 years later. Yeah, so maybe it was slightly. But then when he's like, oh, well, I'm going to ask you to leave, and then... He puts up a fight and have him like thrown down the stairs. That's just like, it's just like callously brutal. Like death says, what is it that death says? Hold on. Some people will do anything for the sheer fascination of doing it, said death, or for fame or because they shouldn't. When Downey asks him how he would assassinate the Hogfather, he like already has a plan. Like he's somebody who has actually thought about it in advance. Yeah. But even, like D- Lord Downey is the head of the Assassin's Guild, you know, like killing people for him is a, a like is his occupation, that's his business. But then it says like many people with no actual morals, Lord Downey did have standards and Teatime repelled him. The fact that he's abhorrent even to like a contract killer. Right. And he like says that like like, he refers to an incident where they sent Tea Time to kill, like, kill someone, and he, like, killed everything in the house. Like, like a really brutal, like, serial killer, like, killed, like, the mark and, like, the help and, like, the animals and, like, everything. They don't go into a lot of detail about what exactly happened, but it's very clear that this is something that is unacceptable to the Assassin's Guild and also, like, really, really freaks them out. And so that's why he selects him to go after the Hogfather because he thinks, oh, well, he won't be able to do it or he'll die or something and we'll be rid of him. Yeah. 
But he's already thought it all the way out. Like he already has like this brilliant plan to assassinate the Hogfather and he puts it into motion fairly quickly. Yeah. I I think what makes him dangerous is he's the type of person to have done this and not kind of like an idle way. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is 1996, and wasn't Home Alone 1994 also? I think so. 1990, the year I was oh. born. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, and then, like, later on when Susan throws the poker at him, and it goes through death and it hits Susan, uh, I think it's one of the children who says it only kills monsters. Which yeah. I just thought was so, like, and Death is like, no, the children have a pretty good idea of what he was. Like, they recognize immediately that Death is actually not the scariest person there. Yeah. I like that. And then I, I just appreciate their banter at the end where Death was like, were you 100% sure that wouldn't have hurt me? And then she's like, well, it was like <laughs> an educated guess. Yeah, like, I, I figured it wouldn't. Yeah. That was pretty good. What did you think of Tea Time's plan with the teeth and the tooth fairy? Yeah, that's another part of this thing, that he's just, like, co-opted the tooth fairy and he's using children's teeth to create an army of, like, basically mind-controlled soldiers. I'm sorry. I, like, I feel like I'm not on enough drugs to fully, like, understand (laughs) his plot. This, like, on the level of teeth... I feel like you'd need to be on Novocaine to fully understand the like intricacies of this plot. At the same time, I think it's a really genius way of doing it. Yeah, I like how it delves into what they call the magic that's so old it's not even really magic. I mean, that's like a really old idea, controlling someone through like discarded body parts like hair or nails or teeth or whatever. But, like, I, it's definitely, like, a well-established trope. And I feel like Terry Pratchett was like, where do all the teeth go? <laughs> because, like, it turns out that, like, because we've, I mean, it's been hinted at before that the Tooth Fairy is, like, a franchise, right? Like, Susan meets one of them in Soul Music. But then, like, the idea that they, like, there is a, like, primordial Tooth Fairy. And it's actually a boogeyman who, like, decided to protect children by collecting their teeth. Again, a very weird plot twist. Yeah. But, like, I think just as a, like, as a figure of belief, like, they talk about, and this nearly feels like, you know, the doors that are in that forest in The Nightmare Before Christmas. You know, like, the mm-hmm. Soul Cake Duck and the Sandman and Death. You know, like, all these figures that are tied to belief and then you don't really think that they're real up until you meet you know, like the literal tooth fairy or the hog father or whatever it is in this case. Um, strange to consider that the Sandman exists in the disc world as well. Yeah, the Sandman and Old Man Trouble both get mentioned in this. Hmm. I will say, though, that a pile of teeth is like nightmare fuel for me. Like just a pile of teeth on the floor. Have you seen the show Channel Zero? I have not. I think it's called Channel Zero, but it was this like show that 
ran for three seasons and, and adapted a creepy pasta in each season. And um, mm. the first one was the only really good one. It was horrific. It was about this like creature that was killing children. Um, so trigger warning for that, obviously, and then uh, some gore. Uh, so if you don't like that, uh, just a warning for the next like minute. But it was like collecting their teeth. So it was like, we found this dead kid in the woods and he's missing all of his teeth. And they're like, what the fuck? And then it shows the monster and he's like putting the teeth on himself to build himself a form. It's so fucked up. Yeah, I was about to say that reminds me actually of, again, trigger warning and spoiler warning for the end of Sharp Objects, where you find out who the real killer is because this person's been collecting teeth of, again, children. And... Like, it turns out she's been using them to, like, make a floor in a dollhouse. And, like, it's it's really, really creepy. But, yeah, teeth where they're not supposed to be. Very, very creepy. And I think that that fits in actually really well with the Tooth Fairy as a... The real Tooth Fairy as a boogeyman. Because, like... Like, this is somebody who's decided to protect children by collecting their their teeth so they can't be controlled. But then, like... The way that this person, I'm not sure if there's actually a gender to this person, she, they, he, it's not very clear. Like, the way that they defend themselves is through fear, right? Through getting the worst nightmares of these people and using that against them. And so they die of fright, basically. Yeah. When you think about it, it's really fucked up. It is really fucked up. I mean, like, if you think about some of the things that you were terrified of as a child and, like, what would happen if that became real, I feel like I dreamed some really fucked up shit as a kid. Like, my nightmares were not... They were they are not something that I would like to revisit. Yeah, I still have, like, really bad nightmares sometimes as an adult that, like, wake me up uh, afraid. Yeah, exactly. Like, just, it's interesting how that, like, that part of your brain can just come up with, like, the most scary shit. And I feel like this book, I, there, I can't remember exactly where it is, but it does talk about how, like, children feel things more than adults do. Like, everything is just so immediate and visceral for children and so bringing back that like childhood fear like reminds you of that that part of yourself like that real fear that you have. Yeah. It's interesting um because I think that that's different for everybody. I mean, you get you get like the the guy who's afraid of his childhood wardrobe, right? And the I think that's uh chicken wire. And then like Peachy who's afraid of the the scissor man. And, you know, uh, the lily white boys who are afraid of their mother. So, you know, it's like a whole, it's just interesting, the stuff. Because, like, the wardrobe, for an example, isn't scary to anyone else. It's just scary to Chicken Wire. It's not scary for, like, Bilious or Violet, who are just like, it's a normal wardrobe. Like, why are you so freaked out? And, like, I think that that goes back to this idea that, like, everybody has different things from their childhood that they're afraid of that they just can't handle anymore. Like I, I like horror films, but I often can't watch horror films that are about like ghosts because like my childhood was filled with like stories about like supernatural horror. And so like, 
Like to me, like, even though I don't believe in that stuff anymore, it still triggers like that visceral fear. Yeah. Although I like the university's response to his bo- chicken wire's body coming out of the wardrobe where they're like, bah, uh, what burser did you kill that man? <laughs> Before we move on to Rid Coley and the wizards, cause I do want to talk about them. Uh, do you have anything to say about the auditors in this book as sort of the, the main villains? Yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure what their end game was. Cause I feel like surely they should have anticipated that death would have meddled in it. And that their plan was only to do with death. You know what I mean? Like, it's weird that they just wanted to get rid of the Hogfather, knowing the void that it would create. But then there's a moment that really, like, when death confronts, uh, like, the auditors near the end, you know, when they have to stop the actual Hogfather from dying permanently. Fear, too, is an anchor, said Death, all those senses wide open to every fragment of that wor- of the world, that beating heart, that rush of blood, can you not feel it dragging you back? Once again, the auditor managed to retain a shape for a few seconds and managed to say, you cannot do this, there are rules. Yes, there are rules, but you broke them, how dare you, how dare you? Yeah, I mean, Death gets almost emotional about this, I mean, he even, when he's telling Susan about them he says it in such a way that susan is even kind of taken aback by his tone because she's like i've never heard him speak in anything other than like really calm words but he's like very upset by what the auditors have been doing and what they stand for they're kind of like anti-life yeah and they wanted to remove him for interfering and for you know going against their rules but they're happy to just break whatever rules they want and get rid of life Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to me, the interplay, the like continuation of this struggle between death and the auditors, because you would think that anti-life is death, but it turns out that's not true. Like death is just like the end of life, but that doesn't mean that he's against life as a concept. In fact, he's fascinated with life, right? He's drawn to it. But the auditors like reject life of any kind. They just want everything to be quantifiable numbers and matter. Yeah. I do like the ending where by taking a form, they become alive. And so death is able to kill them. Yeah. I like that it refers to them as not dogs, but dog shapes. Mm -hmm. That's just really creepy writing. Like there's one of the worst things that Stephen King has ever done in a book. Like not from describing something abhorrent, like cough, cough, that scene in it. But in Pet Cemetery, mm-hmm. once Gage has gone through the Pet Cemetery process, he only ever refers to it as the Gage thing. Mm. And, you know, like, that marks out that subtle disconnect from reality. And, you know, like, it's a dog right. thing. This can only approximate what is living. And, like, the way that they describe the dog's movements, like, the fact that they're, like, not really moving their legs, they're just sort of, like jumping from position to position it almost reminded me of like a shutter like a like uh like instead of like actual movement it's like a series of like jerky um you know what i'm talking about i'm, I'm explaining it very badly where yeah. it's like 
they each each it's it's like um animation but you only show like certain slides and so it like jumps yeah. from place to place which is terrifying like film stuttering in a projector or something right exactly like i just think that that's that's really horrifying but i also really liked the connection between hogfather and uh the small gods so the small gods is something that we talked about in the book small gods but the idea that the Hogfather is a deity, he is a god, you know, th- people do sacrifice to him. And the ways in which gods sort of hang on to life or they do, what is it, old gods do new jobs? Yeah. Like he starts as this like primordial pig, <laughs> right? This this boar, um, which is like this symbol of life and then like becomes like the man, right? In the loincloth that had eaten the bean and died and then becomes you know, like more like the hog father that they know by the end, you know? And so it's just, it's really interesting to watch that progression and think about like, oh, okay. Like what is our Santa Claus based on? Like, where did that start? And like, how did that person, if we thought of them as like a real person, how did that person adapt to the changing world? I think the concept of God's changing with the times is really interesting. I'm doing a a reread of the Percy Jackson series with my friend mm. Perry. Hi, Perry. I'm probably not listening to this, but anyway, the fact that they're talking about like the cultural centers of the world, like the Western world moving and shifting and, you know, like how the flame of the West is in America now and uh, Hollywood is in LA obvious, or is in California, of course. I think that's an interesting concept and obviously it doesn't have to be America centric and it can work in, non-earth worlds like disc world but it's a fascinating concept especially when you think about polytheistic religions and pagan practices becoming monotheistic world religions like catholicism quoth is the one who actually explains this in the book when he's talking to susan and he says uh yes he continued expansively he was probably just your basic winter demiurge you know blood on the snow making the sun come up starts off with animal sacrifice you know hunt some big hairy animal to death that kind of thing you know there's some people up on the ram tops who kill a wren at hogs watch and walk around from house to house singing about it with a whack full oh diddle do dudo dildo very folkloric very mythic and so like this idea yeah and he continues later uh, anyway, then later on, it sinks to the level of religion, and they start this business where some poor bugger finds a special bean in his tucker, and oh ho, everyone says, you're the king, mate, and he thinks this is a bit of all right. They say it wouldn't be a good idea to start any long books, because next thing he's legging it over the snow with a dozen other buggers chasing him with holy sickles, so the earth will come to life again and the snow will go away. Like, you know, this idea that, like, he calls it industrial retraining, like, in order to hold on to his believers, which we saw what happens to the gods and small gods who don't hold on to their believers, but in order to hold on to his believers, he has to like continually change what he is in order for people to continue to believe in this idea of Hog's Watch and Hogfather. Yeah, definitely. Uh, let's talk about Susan. What did you think about Susan's storyline in this? Susan's pretty badass. What do you think of her as a governess? I I like that. Hold on now. There's a quote about her like her being a governess and it like it being one of the few roles that um she become a governess. It was one of the few jobs a known lady could do. 
and she'd taken to it well. She'd w sworn that if she did ever, indeed ever find herself dancing on rooftops with chimney sweeps, she'd beat herself to death with her own umbrella. It's a nice little Mary <laughs> Poppins reference there, which is, of course, my favorite film. Your favorite film, yeah. I remember. Yes. I like that. The like I like the fact that she's a known woman, uh, and so then has to do this job. But like that first scene where she goes and deals with the monster, um, with twi like the Twyla is seeing, and then she's like, "Oh, like it seems like oh, it's just a pretend monster or whatever." And then it says later she goes and she drags up this horrible thing out of the cellar with all the tentacles. I like that. Yeah, <laughs> and the and the poker bent at a right angle. I love Twyla's. Susan says, "Don't get afraid, get angry," <laughs> which is like such a Susan thing to say. Yeah, it's like, well, what's the point in getting afraid? Getting angry means you can do something about it. It's more of a productive emotion, right? Which I think is why the Tooth Fairies castle doesn't really get a hold of her right she's not really afraid of anything she gets angry instead of afraid and so it can't find any purchase on her yeah i also like her interactions with twyla where twyla is talking like you know like a gap-toothed child and then she's like i what did i tell you about that and twyla is just like oh sorry i'm sorry for trying to sound precocious this book has a lot to say about precocious children because it it has a lot to say about like how we have this conception of children as being innocent and precocious and cute, but most children aren't like that. Most children like stories about blood and seeing pigs wee on the carpet and you know like all of these all of these things and sometimes they're really manipulative and sometimes they're really mean and and that's I think there's a line in the book where they're like it's always good to hear children laughing and at play as long as you're not close enough to hear the actual words yeah i like as well the line gawain and twyla who'd been named by people who apparently loved them <laughs> yeah it's uh it's pretty funny although i there is also this sense that they've been horribly wronged by their last governess right who used like the specter of monsters to keep them in line and Susan, like, yeah. basically says that she would happily kill this governess if she ever got a hold of her. It's a nice, like, parallel between Susan and the last governess and Lord Downey and Teotima, where both of them ostensibly do the same job, but one is, like, unbelievably more fucked up. That is absolutely true. But yeah, she treats them like small adults. She gives like she t gets rid of all the books about spot and balls and gives uh, uh, Gawain a, a book about General Tacticus to read and his vocabulary gets better. And yeah, it's it's really interesting the way that she treats them like you are human beings and you have agency and you're intelligent and you can you can figure it out. Right. I don't think enough people treat children that way. They don't actually listen to what children want. They just sort of treat them the way they think children should be treated. Yeah. I'm grateful that my childhood library let me just treated me like a fully-fledged adult member of the library, where they were like, mm -hmm. yeah, you can just walk into the back room and take books out of there, you know, unsupervised. Just do whatever, yeah. That's always a good thing, to be honest with you. I think children can handle a lot more than we think that they can. They understand a lot more than we think that they do. They understand a lot of things that we don't think that they're able to understand. 
Susan also uh, shows up at Beers, which was the bar that Angua and and Sherry were at in Feet of Clay, the undead bar. It's interesting yeah. that Susan, as the granddaughter of death, hangs out at a bar that's kind of for like these undead, monstrous misfits. Uh, and not everybody knows who she is. Igor, who runs the bar, who's the bartender, which is a great little reference to to Frankenstein, is he knows who she is, but she is also harassed by a boogeyman who doesn't know who she is. And I love the scene where she pulls out the blanket and throws it over his head and he has a moment of existential crisis. Yeah. Or when she puts just a little bit of death in her voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she can talk the talk. And she gets in trouble because Igor is like, no using powers in here. Yeah, I like that because it goes back to um, so that one of the very first things that I picked up on about like people and things becoming death. Where is it now? He's slipping out of character, she muttered to the hall in general. I can feel him doing it, and that drags me in. What's he doing it all for? Yeah, she's concerned at first that he killed the Hogfather. That, like, he went crazy and, like, like a very Jack Skellington kind of thing, where it's like he wanted to be that character so much that he, like, got rid of him. Because it definitely feels like the auditors going to the Guild of Assassins is... Jack going to those three little children and them going to Oogie Boogie. Mm-hmm. But also, like, let's not let's not forget that insane part of the film where Jack pretends to be Father Christmas and then just the normal human military response by trying to shoot him out of the sky. <laughs> <laughs> that is America for you. Shoot Santa Claus out of the sky. What do you think about Susan and Death's relationship in this book? The last book, she was 16. She had just found out who she was and who death was. She's 18 in this book. It's been a couple of years. She's trying very hard to be normal at the beginning of this book. But then death comes back into her life. I really enjoyed their interactions because it definitely shows that it's, you know, that it's one that's matured from, you know, because like in, in the last book, you know, she doesn't know that she's death's granddaughter and she like thinks that he's this cold kind of inhuman presence and then like you know like there's the moment where she realizes he built the swing just for her tried to accommodate his house as best he could and then he has the moment of you know do you have a kiss for your old grandfather so like she doesn't want to be dragged into the world yeah but at the same time she realizes she can't she can't leave him in distress if he is in fact like in trouble and the fact that he, like, essentially cons her into doing the right thing. <laughs> They're sort of the archetypical young person and their, like, codgerly old grandparent uh, who's up to mischief. Like, I feel like death would fit very well into the Thursday Murder Club, uh, if you've read those <laughs> books at all. I know what they are. I haven't read them. Yeah, so I also think it's funny that I mean, it's very, it's almost a Ventinari to Vimes move that Death does, where he like specifically tells her, like, don't worry about it. It's under control. And of course, that makes her want to investigate. Yeah, well, it's a very Ventinari to Ridcully move where he says a bird hasn't landed from the Agatean Empire. <laughs> 
could she be a little less discreet? Yeah, it, it's mm. very interesting, their their thing. And then we get this very, like you said, badass scene with Susan. Well, two badass scenes with Susan and Tea Time. One in the Tooth Fairies castle. I love the scene where he's like, I'm in touch with my inner child. And she's like, hello, inner child. I'm the inner babysitter. And then like pushes him off the tower. It's a very badass moment. Yeah. I mean, is it slightly manipulative that like death got her to go to Tea Time's world because he couldn't go there? Kind of. But at the same time, it's like well-intentioned and needed to be done. Yeah, I think it's interesting because, like, Susan does have this attitude where she keeps saying things like, oh, well, if I don't help him, then I'm going to get dragged back into being death. And, like, we know how that went last time and I just want to be normal. But that those excuses kind of fade away after the first third of the book. And it genuinely seems like she cares if he's okay or not. To the point where, like, it's like she you you forget sometimes because we think of her as death's granddaughter and we focus on her. But we also forget that, like, she's his only family besides Albert. So, like, the idea that, like, she feels this obligation to take care of him because he doesn't really have anybody else. Yeah. We also get the adventures of the Death of Rats and Quoth the Raven. (laughs) We get to see them as, like, a little comedic duo because they help Susan kind of get on the right path at the beginning of the book. But then after that, they kind of wander off and do their own thing. I liked them. I thought they were very funny. I like as well that they finally refer to the death of rats as a grim squeaker. I like that. (laughs) Yeah, I I do enjoy that too. I love just his absolute astonishment when he sees death in the Hogfather costume. Like he's just like can't. It's turnips. They leave turnips out. I was, I've been like racking my brain this entire episode because I was like, is it apples and sherry? It's turnips and sherry because it's for the pigs. Yeah. So he's like gnawing on the turnip and then he sees death and he like freaks out because he's just like, and immediately goes to Susan. Yeah. Quote's obsession with eyeballs. Funny or no? Not funny per se, but like wacky, definitely. There's also a line. In a, uh, it reminded me of, I know the Mountain Goats is the band I reference every episode, and I will do that, um, but I like that um, there there is a reference to a, well, that I connected to a Will Wood song. It's not a reference to a Will, Will Wood song, because this, was, this came out in 1996, but it's along the lines of Death of Rats. Where is it? Uh, I'm trying to find the exact quote, but it was like, uh... yeah, rats and mice finally found out if there was a promised cheese, this place was different. And in Will Wood's song, Tomcat Disposables, he wonders, is there, is there cheese in the great beyond, rinds of Parmesan? That's just a nice little thing that I noticed. Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, the idea of like an afterlife for rodents. Yeah, and it's just a thing of cheese. Makes sense to do me. Do rats eat cheese? I think rats eat anything. Do actually, do mice eat cheese? Let's see. What do mice eat? Cuz I know like we have this conception that cats drink milk and ducks eat bread, but ducks don't really eat bread and adult cats can't process the lactose in milk. 
So do cheese eat mice? Do do mice eat cheese even? Yeah, it looks like if you Google it, they mainly eat like it says sweet fruits and berries, pet food, nuts, nearly any kind of meat, grains and seeds, plants, dinner leftovers. So I guess dinner leftovers could be cheese if you eat cheese. Yeah, like if you're in France, because a whole course of their meal is cheese. Mice will eat just about anything in your home, is uh-huh. what it says here. So, fun fact about mice. I assume rats are similar. The other big thread in this is, of course, Ridcully and the wizards at Unseen University who are preparing for their Hogs Watch feast. As they are preparing for it, they they get visits from a lot of the other characters. So like Susan drops in at one point. They are also involved in this sort of leftover belief where they keep naming plausible plausible household gods is what they're called. And and they can't start coming into popping to existence, like the cheerful fairy and the Veruca gnome and the the sock eater, which is one of my favorite ones that they come up with, like or the one very who makes much the bells go glingle glingle. Yeah, the one that's in the hat that makes the bells go glingle glingle. Yeah, and uh, the dean tries to have a give dean bags of money fairy, but that's not plausible enough. Nobody believes in it enough for for that to take root. So there's a lot of that going on, but it is also a lot of just like we've seen this before, but it's just really well done. Like the Ridcoli and wizards. Have a night of adventure. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's interesting. I and mean, like we haven't mentioned this before, but I just want to say I really, really like Billius, the O God of Hangovers. Yeah. So Susan finds I forgot to mention him, but yeah, Billius the O God of Hangovers. Susan finds him in the Is it the Castle of Bones? Yeah. That's what it's called. Yeah, which by the way, also great name. Yeah, Castle of Bones. And yeah, he's the O God of Hangovers. Which she brings yeah. to Ridcoli and the wizards to sober up or to, as for a hangover cure, I should say. Hmm. And uh, just as well with like good names, there's a lot in this book that kind of steers into nearly like, like epic fantasy type writing where they talk about like, you know, near where the Hogfather is, uh, they call it like an early place. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Um, but the scene with the hangover cure is very funny. It reminds me slightly of Norse mythology when they're trying to come up with the chain that binds Fenrir, uh, where they make it out of things that don't exist. You know, like a cat's shadow and, and the hair of a woman's beard, which obviously in Norse times, or at least the people writing the myths didn't anticipate women with facial hair, which is a weird thing. But yeah, I like it. In Rick Reardon has a series about the Norse gods and they have to rebind this cha- remake this chain. And some of the things they include are like, a politician's honesty. <laughs> um, Things that are non-existent. One need only look at America now, currently, um, and the sort of shithole that it is. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the things they put in the hangover cure. It's very funny. Yeah, but on top of that, I like I like that um, Hex is a main player in this storyline. Yeah, let's talk about Hex. I think one of the funniest things in this book is Ridcoli yelling at Hex because he assumes there's someone in there that can hear him. Like, are they treating you okay? Yeah. Ridcoli is like everyone's grandmother when you visit them. Are they Jesus Christ, are they feeding you enough over there? 
You're practically <laughs> starved. Or like, I, I mean, and this was in 96, so they didn't have this technology yet. But you know how like elderly people will sometimes like speak a little too loudly or yell into like a uh, like a, a FaceTime or a, or a teleconference of some kind where they, yeah, they just assume that there's like a distance between you and they can't hear or you can't hear them. Yeah, their phone is, like, no further than six inches from their face, to reference Bo Burnham. Yeah, I like that. Um, Hex has got some really funny lines in the book. Hold on now, there's one to do with resetting the universe. There's also, just in this one, I and I want to, like, co-op this into daily speech, uh, where they just say, please reinstall universe and reboot. <laughs> that's because hex is like very logical but he when he talks to red coley he catches like the bursers like tick and so he like types in lots of dried frog pills and that resets hex which i also think was very funny and the way that yeah. hex replies is very reminiscent of the scene in 2001 a space odyssey Good evening, Arch-Chancellor. I am fully recovered and enthusiastic about my tasks. And then Hal says things like, Good afternoon, gentlemen. I am Hal 9000, computer. And I am completely operational and all my systems are functioning perfectly. So it's very much that, like, Hal type of computer here. Yeah. Just before I read this book, I actually read um, Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir, author of The Martian. And the alien species in that, when they, like, convert their language to English talks very much like Hex does. Like when they ask a question, they're mm. like, what is that question? To indicate that it's, you know, the interrogative. Things like that. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, divide by cucumber. Oh, Hex just says that if it comes up with an answer, it no can't possibly be real. That's a uh, parody of divide by zero error for a lot of computers. Yeah. Like there's just a lot of like really funny computer jokes in here as well. Like like there's so many acronyms uh in computer language like CPU and like that kind of thing that get parodied here like uh BL BRL big red lever like uh it's it's really quite funny. Yeah, and we slightly we have some slight nods to maybe Hex growing an individual personality. Every time he came in here, it seemed to Ridcully something more had been done to the engine or thinking machine or whatever it was. Sometimes stuff turned up overnight. Occasionally, according to Stibbins, Hex himself would draw plans for extra bits what that he it needed. It all gave Ridcully the willies, and an additional willy was engendered right now when he saw the burser sitting in front of the thing. For a moment, he forgot all about Verrucas. Yeah, and where they, like, take the teddy bear away and it won't work without the teddy bear, so they have to put it back on. Yeah. Oh, well, I was going to say, actually, with the big red lever thing, it's a really interesting reference. And I had to look this up to make sure I was actually thinking about it correctly. But apparently the old IBM mainframes, the IBM PCs, had large bright red power switches. When he says big red lever time, query to death he's actually asking if death has come for him which is a really interesting concept because it implies that he believes that hex believes that it is alive and that it is subject to death because that's why death says to him no before he asks him his questions about the hogfather i didn't know that now and obviously maybe terry pratchett 
I, I mean, obviously you can do research, but as like part of being a nuclear kind of physicist, he'd be around a lot of that kind of computers or like holdovers from IBM. Mm. It implies that Hex is aware of itself, but it's not acting in ways that we would normally associate with like an AI story. Like it is still very much attached to the wizards and to this gigantic piece of equipment that now includes beehives as well, which I thought was very clever. Yeah, it's still, it seems like Hex is still subject to like Asimov's three laws of robotics, but at the mm -hmm. same time, yeah. it's definitely past the Turing test and the singularity. It's like a child. Yeah. Like it's still learning and growing and it needs the wizards to do that, but it is definitely aware of itself. Yeah. And I like I like Hex as like the engine of infinite belief. Mm, you know, mm -hmm. where Hex has been programmed to believe in the Hogfather and it works. So quite obviously Hex is alive in as much as like a living being is required to believe in a small god so it doesn't die. It writes the letter, which I thought was interesting, and was like death was like Oh, you don't need to do that. And Hex goes, I'm entitled. Like, if I believe in the Hogfather, I am entitled to write a letter. I want to do that in just casual conversation. If someone tells me to stop doing something that I'm, like, supposed to be doing, I'll just go, ah, I'm entitled. This is part of the, this is part of the contract. Now, have I ever told you about my friend who went to Germany and was asking for directions to, like, some local landmark in German or whatever? But he went up to this lady. No. And he said in German, you know, can you point the, do you know the way? Can you point me to this like clock tower or whatever it was? And she just walked past and put her hand up in his face, like flat out into his face. As she walked by, she just went, nein, danke. <laughs> I mean, at least she was clear, I guess. Yeah, I like that. That's like the opposite side of the spectrum to I'm entitled. I also love that the librarian believes in the Hogfather and leaves bananas out for him. That's so sweet. That scene was so nice. Ugh. The librarian... I love the librarian. And he asks for all the library supplies and goes to bed early, presumably so the morning will get there faster. Yeah, that's a strange... That's a strange thing when you consider that, like, if the Hogfather and the Santa Claus have... It, like, exists in this strange, like, pocket of time that allows them enough time to travel the world in a night. Why do people need to go to bed early to hasten this? Yeah, but that's, like, a really common thing, like, for children to be like, oh, the sooner I come to go to bed, the sooner I'm going to wake up and Santa oh, yeah, Claus no, no. will have been here. I know yeah. the psychology on, like, the children's end, but when you consider, like, right. the physics of it on the opposite end... Yeah, it's very strange because, yeah, like death like does the non-time thing where like the Hogfather exists in the special time that allows him to go everywhere. And you also get Susan stopping time in the book before she leaves to go investigate what's going on. So like theoretically, no time has really passed from when she left to when she comes back to the house. Yeah, there are a lot of cameos in this book. I didn't mention this earlier, but 
I thought it was really funny when Susan comes to Death's house and finds the cats. Like, there's just a ton of cats in the kitchen. And she takes this as a sign that maybe he is, like, going a little mad. But I just like the idea that Death collects cats. Like, homeless cats. And they just... And they're just like, yeah, I'm in Death's house now. What of it? Yeah, I mean, isn't that what he says is like one of the good things in the world that makes him happy in Morse? I think it's in sorcery that he says that. He says that to uh, the wizard who dies at the beginning, the father of coin. Where he says, like, what's what's worth living? And he's like, cats. Cats are nice. Yeah, and then he has a moment with one of the dead people where they're like, "Oh, it's um, the the first king in in Weird Sisters, Thelmus." Yeah. Yeah, where he's like, "Oh, I don't like cats. I'm more of a dog person myself." And Death is like just annoyed by that. Oh, that's a uh, uh, Varence one, the first Varence. Ah, Thelma is the Duke. Yeah. Yeah. It's been so long. Who even remembers all of this? I guess we'll have to do another reread. I guess we'll have to do another reread. There's a lot. I mean, there's that. Uh, there's a reference to Didactylos. I don't know if yes. you noticed that. That was really early on. That was That's the thing that made me laugh in this book. Okay, I'll wait then to, to talk about that one. We get Moto is has several appearances in this book. Poor Moto. He has to do so much cleaning up after the wizards. Yeah, quick question. What's the deal with that bathroom? Like, what is going on with that bathroom? Oh, yeah. So the bathroom is designed by Bloody Stupid Johnson, and the last person to use it was Arch-Chancellor Weatherwax. So that's a a really fun Color of Magic, Light Fantastic reference. Yeah. But yeah, like, I don't... It is somehow connected to the organ. That's the only thing I can think of. But like, yeah, it's... It's a bathroom by Bloody Stupid Johnson. That means something is, like, terribly wrong with it. Yeah. But, yeah. No, there's just there's just too many things going on in that bathroom. Yeah. Uh, I already mentioned that General Tacticus comes up. I only bring it up because it, he will come up again in the next book that we're going to do. Oh, uh, okay. I will, wait and, I will wait to see which book that is. There is a Captain Carrot toy. An action figure based on Captain Carrot that gets given to a child by death. What do you think about the fact that Captain Carrot apparently has an action figure? I uh, just just remind me again. Is does the child ask for it or does death like just give it to the child knowing it? Because I think. I think there is a like. Obviously, because the people can look up to him as kind of the face of a watch and a city that actually cares for them. But, like, if it's along the lines of death giving a child a sword because that's what the child actually really wants but can't voice that want, like, the fact that death acknowledges, like, would acknowledge Carrot as a hero or someone worth looking up to and worth, like, idolizing in what's essentially a small form of worship. That's what you have to think about when you make toys of like famous people, you know, like One Direction dolls or whatever back in the day. That's a form of like graven image. So that's technically worship. Not to get all Old Testament Ten Commandments on everyone. <laughs> well, actually, so I found the, the portion here. So 
It says, uh, it was a strange but demonstrable fact that the sacks of toys carried by the Hogfather, no matter what they really contained, always appeared to have sticking out of the top a teddy bear, a toy soldier in the kind of colorful uniform that would actually stand out in a disco, a drum, a red and white candy cane. The actual contents always turned out to be something a bit garish and costing five ninety nine. Death had investigated one or two. There had been a real Agitean ninja, for example, with a fearsome death grip and a Captain Carrot one-man night watch with complete wardrobe of toy weapons, each of which cost as much as the original wooden doll in the first place. So it's just something that exists in the Hogfather sacks? Hmm. Much to think about. I don't know. There's a reference to the elves where somebody asks Albert if he's an elf and he said, try making elves make toys like they're going to they would just carve your name and their name in your forehead with a chisel. Yeah. Um, so there there's a, a reference to that. There was a Wendell Poons reference as well. I don't know if you caught that. My favorite Wendell Poons, but specifically dead Wendell Poons. Yeah, uh, it's part of Hex is Wendell Poons's old ear trumpet that he used to hear. Hex has appropriated it. Mm. We've already talked about Nobby and Corporal Visit and the librarian, but we also get uh, a couple of sections with Foul Old Ron, the Duckman, Arnold Sideways, and uh, Gaspode as well. They get given a Christmas feast by death. Yeah, we haven't really talked about that, but I like this as a class-conscious storyline. You know, like, Mm -hmm. they get given the Christmas feast, and so then, like, Death can't really create stuff, so he's, like, it's stolen from a kitchen. So then the kitchen needs to appropriate boots, and so then when they go to the fancy restaurant then, they get boots, and they say, well, is this really what rich food tastes like? It tastes like boots. So you've got this weird, like, right. Gift of the Magi storyline going on where it's like, I bought you this watch. I bought you this chain for your watch because I know you like your watch. But I've, And I bought you this comb for your hair because I know you like your hair. But we've sold one of those things to appease the other. Right, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's obviously like a dig at expensive cuisine. But I do also like the part where he's like, it's not really about the food. It's about the ambiance. <laughs> Yeah, that's what you're paying for. And where he's like getting the, like making the different dishes based off of boots. It's kind of gross, but also really funny. Yeah. I mean, like, I've had ostrich steak before, right? Oh, really? Yeah, it's very nice. But you want to know where I had ostrich steak? Where I bought it? Where? Where? Lidl. It was discounted in Lidl. Yeah, which is weird considering this is like, you know, you'd think that it'd be in like a higher end restaurant, but like, I can just go and buy that, and I bought it for, like, five euro, you know what I mean? So, I'm not paying for this insane value because of the food. Like, if I went to a restaurant and paid $100 and had an ostrich steak, I would also be paying $100 to, like, I don't know, sit in the dark and have someone scream directly in my face as I eat. Yeah. And everyone else in the restaurant is nude or something. Why are those restaurants... Why do they exist? Yeah, it's it is interesting. You're paying more for like the experience than you are for the actual food. Because yeah. like, I mean, now food costs a lot more in the U.S. than it used to because we're going through a supply chain food shortage. But yeah. it doesn't cost that much. Yeah, 
and you kind of have to think like in situations like this like not to divert too heavily into like the current situation but just like when we're on about this like why do those restaurants why are they still doing big business when we're having food chain like supply issues and why is question. like formula one still happening when the price of gas is so high uh, and I don't know, like, I mean, I don't know enough about Formula One to know whether they use different fuel or not, but it still seems like if people actually gave a shit about, you know, working class people, they'd do something to help it, which I think is what, right. like, you know, this just comes back to what death is trying to do in this book. Right. Like, this is the way it should go, but it's not, but it's wrong. It shouldn't yeah. go that way. Any Mountain Goats reference? Uh, yeah, miss? this is... There was no real way to insert this one um, because, like I said, the plot of this one is slightly bonkers, so I just went with the Christmas <laughs> version... Uh, Christmas-type song. Um, so I went with Snow Song by the Mountain Goats. There is a lot of snow in this book. Yeah. Oh, fuck. I lost... Uh, had the lyrics up there a, a second, but then I googled Thaumaturgy. Give me one sec. Because, like, the Mountain Goats have done a lot of Christmas songs, but a lot of them are covers of, you know, like, John Prine songs and whatever. Right. I like just the Snow Song. Uh, this is from the Mountain Goats fandom wiki, uh, and I didn't know this fact. Because uh, I know it, fr like, it was re-released on Bitter Melon Farm, one of their studio albums. But Snow Song is the fourth song on the compilation Dog So Large I Cannot See Past It. They come up with some pretty good titles, don't they? But, the, yeah, Snow Song. Uh, what cars there are go by like snails, and ice crystals shine on the staircase's handrails. The quiet air is worth some discussion, as the windows crack and the cold is crushing. They've shut down the roads to the coast, and there's white streets as far as the eye can see. And I'd just as soon make you disappear as look at you, but I draw you close to me. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? And that's the entire song. Very short. Kind of bleak. Oh, hold on. It's got comments from John Nairneal about the song. Uh, quote, this song's title is for me a generic term with a very specific purpose. I use it when I've written a song whose mood reminds me either lyrically or musically of the winter I spent in Portland, Oregon, a season during which I almost died at least twice. Oh, wow. When he was in Portland, Oregon, he was um, a heroin addict. Yeah. Gotcha. So a lot of his songs, especially on like Transcendental Youth, like um, Lakeside View Apartment Complex, they're they're about um, his time as a drug addict and getting gotcha. out of that. Gotcha. Also, like the holidays tend to be really depressing for a lot of people. Like people report higher depression rates and higher suicide rates around the holidays as well. I think it's because like we have this image of like what the holidays are supposed to be, and like if it's not like that it can cause people to have like to to not feel like they're actually living their lives or have you know loved ones etc so yeah. that that uh, is like a big thing too god you have to remind me of one of the most crushing like soul destroying lines i've ever read in a book i'm trying to find my copy but no because i actually kind of want to reread it um but imaginary friend by steven Chbosky. have you read it i have not so, yeah, Stephen Chbosky, Perks of Being a Wallflower Guy, for listeners who don't know, wrote Not that, that book. Yeah, he wrote that book in the 90s, then didn't write another book for 20 years, coasted off of the success of that one, 
wrote a few screenplays. That's it. He wrote the screenplay for the adaptation of Perks of Being a Wallflower and the adaptation of Orge Palacio's Wonder. And then in 2019, came out with a 700-page horror novel. Absolute brick of a thing. Complete, complete genre wow. tone shift. But the main character is this kid who has an imaginary friend that's, like, slightly menacing or whatever at the start. But as he's getting on, like, he gets the power to, like, feel people's emotions. And he's getting off the bus to go to school, like, near the holidays. Or he's getting off the bus to go home. Whatever way he is, he's getting off the school bus and he says goodbye to the bus driver. And he, like, thanks him and he makes him feel valued. And the line is something along the lines of, like, you know, he he says that. And because he did this, he knows that, the bu- like, the bus driver won't go home and kill himself over the holidays. It's, yeah. Yeah, I mean. It's so relentlessly bleak. It is, like, the dark side of the holidays that people don't talk about. And this book doesn't really talk about it um, that much because it's not really concerned with it. It's outside kind of the scope of what this book is doing. It's more interested in things like class and commercialism and paganism as related to Hog's Watch. But it is, that is a very real part of the holidays for a lot of people. Yeah. So uh, a public service message from your friends here at Nanny Og's Book Club. If you've got a friend who's on their own on holidays this holiday season, or if you're listening to this at holiday season, you know, check in on them. Make sure they're all right. Send them, some, send them a message. See how they're doing. All right. So as we wrap up, I did not keep track of the death sightings or death of rat sightings since this was a death book. It seems a little bit counterintuitive to do that. But I did keep track of the other things. So the first footnote in this book is on the very first page. It was much earlier even than that when most people forgot that the very oldest stories are sooner or later about blood. Later on, they took the blood out to make the stories more acceptable to children, or at least to the people who had read to the who had to read them to children rather than the children themselves, who on the whole are quite keen on blood provided it's being shed by the deserving. Footnote, that is to say, those who deserve to shed blood, or possibly not. You never know with some kids. And that just kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about, like, the difference between the way people see children and the way children actually are. Children, I've heard children come up with some of the most bloodthirsty stories that I've ever heard. Yeah. They're not always bothered by blood and gore and viscera. Mm. I think sometimes they're less bothered about it than adults are. Yeah, that's just reminding me of all the really fucked up stories I wrote when I was like 11 as a kid. There was one story I wrote where like my class was going on a field trip for like three days to this adventure center in Baltinglass County Wicklow. And I wrote a story about us going there, except all of the staff there were vampires and they brutally murdered like most of my class. Wow. Yeah. That's messed up. I love it. But yeah, like kids, like they often like are not bothered by that stuff. Yeah. At all. I also am not sure that children completely understand the finality of death. No. (laughs) Or like a lot of children don't. And so like to them, it's just like, oh yeah, encased in cement. Sure. Yeah. I feel like I looked at being encased in cement and went, yeah, I could do that. Yeah, I could, I could survive that. What was your favorite footnote? My favorite footnote, and it's kind of bordering on things that make you think, and I feel like maybe this is your one as well, because you've mentioned this one before. 
It's amazing how good governments are, given their track record in almost every other field at hushing up things like alien encounters. One reason may be that aliens themselves are too embarrassed to talk about it. It's not known why most of the space-going races of the universe want to undertake rummaging and earthling underwear as a prelude to formal contact. But representatives of several hundred races have taken to hanging out, unsuspected by one another, in rural corners of the planet, and as a result of this keep on abducting other would-be abductees. Some have been, in fact, abducted while waiting to carry out an abduction on a couple of other aliens trying to abduct the aliens who were, as a result of misunderstood instructions, trying to form cattle into circles and mutilate crops. The planet Earth is now <laughs> banned to all alien races until they can compare notes and find out how many, if any, real humans they have actually got. It is gloomily suspected that there is only one who is big, hairy, and has very large feet. The truth may be out there, but lies are inside your head. I like the little X-Files dig there at the end. Yeah, like Bigfoot is the only real human. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only one that they've got. Yeah, I like that as well, just because like how ludicrous some people's conspiracy theories about aliens are, where it's like, but why would they bother? Like all of this Why would they bother doing that? Yeah. All of this thing that you have like that you've dreamed of, like, but why? But why would they what would that accomplish exactly? Yeah, what goal do you think that's serving? Maybe aliens are just fucking with us. I oh my god, I would love that so much. If the whole like abduction and probing thing was just like them fucking with us because they know that's what we think they do, so they're like, oh well. <laughs> or making the crop circles just so people will have like conspiracy theories about them. Yeah. They don't actually serve a purpose. No, yeah, what's the point of Well, I mean, obviously crop circles are meant to be where the aliens have landed, but still, I feel like there's so many other ways you could go about doing that. So my favorite footnote was actually not that one, although I did enjoy that one a lot, but my favorite footnote was the one about the professor of anthropic. So oh, yeah. obviously they lived, so it's about wizards didn't go to bed early in any case, footnote. Often they lived to a time scale to suit themselves. Many of the senior ones, of course, lived entirely in the past, but several were like the professor of anthropics who had invented an entire temporal system based on the belief that all other ones were a mere illusion. P many people are aware of the weak and strong anthropic principles. The weak one says, basically, that it was jolly amazing of the universe to be constructed in such a way that humans could evolve to a point where they could make a living in, for an example, universities. While the strong one says that, on the contrary, the whole point of the universe was that humans should not only work in universities, but also write for huge sums books with words like cosmic and chaos in the titles. Another footnote here. And they are correct. The universe clearly operates for the benefits of humanity. This can readily be seen from the convenient way the sun comes up in the morning when people are ready to start the day. The UU professor of anthropics had developed the special and inevitable anthropic principle, which was that the entire reason for the existence of the universe was the eventual evolution of the UU professor of anthropics. But this was only a formal statement of the theory, which absolutely everyone, with only some minor details of a fill-in-name-here nature, secretly believes to be true. I like that one because... It is true, like, even if you're not a vain person or a particularly narcissistic person, you, st I mean, it's just the nature of humanity that you 
sort of act like you're the only like real person. And that's where empathy comes in, obviously, to remind us that there are other people. But it's just kind of like, yeah, like the universe exists around me for me. Right. Um, And that's just kind of a base level of how humans perceive and organize the world. But I also liked the joke later that Red Coley makes where he says, I thought the universe was for us, or at least for the professor of anth- uh, anthropics. Uh, that, that also just reminds me of a Linkin Park lyric from um, Heavy, off of their last studio album before Chester Bennington's death. Um, it's from Heavy, where they say, I know I'm not the center of the universe, but you keep spinning around me just the same. Yeah, like this idea that like, and death kind of brings this up later too, where he's like, you know, of course, like the sun would keep rising, you know, but that's not really the point. Like humans organize the universe around them instead of like seeing the universe as it actually is. What's something that made you laugh? Something that made me laugh was the aforementioned Didactylos reference. Uh, and I've made my, I've made my <laughs> love for Didactylos clear before in this podcast. Uh, he was in he was in Small Gods, so there's another tie to Small Gods. Yeah, so this is also just a really strange moment in the book where, like, the kind of omniscient third-person narrator becomes first-person, just, like, slightly after an earlier still when something in the darkness of the deepest caves and gloomiest forests thought, what are they, these creatures? I will observe them. You know, like, who is that speaking? Perhaps just the narrator. Oh, I thought it was death. But it's not. It's not the small capital, so that's why I didn't think death. Ah, yeah. That's interesting. I never thought about that before, that it might be the narrator. I just always assumed it was death, but you are absolutely right. There's, It's not small caps. Yeah, because maybe it's the uni- like maybe the narrator is the universe, and then this would imply that the universe is aware of itself, which I think is an interesting concept in sci-fi and fantasy. Like, the universe is watching itself. It's kind of, yeah, it's one of those, like, arguments, uh, like, about Schrodinger's cat, where it's like, yeah, there might not be a person observing the cat in the box, but the universe is observing the cat in the box. Right. That's so interesting. I never thought of it as the narrator. Ah, completely blew my mind, Nigel. I'm going to have to rethink everything. (laughs) Oh, Uh, thank you. Because then we go straight into, like, the narration stock, like, introduction of the Great Atuan. So that I was like, well, it's the narration, I guess. Because then it goes, and much, much earlier than that, when the Discworld was formed, drifting onward through space atop four elephants on the shell of the, great, of the giant turtle Great Atuan. Possibly, as it moves, it gets tangled like a blind man in a cobwebbed house in those highly specialized little space-time strands that try to breed in every history they encounter stretching them and breaking them and tugging them into new shapes. Or possibly not, of course. The philosopher Didactylos has summed up an alternate hypothesis as, things just happen, what the hell? And it's kind of like, (laughs) it's kind of my philosophy to life where it's like, oh, well, things are just going to happen, I guess. I can't really change that, so I'm just going to go with it. Right, and it actually seems to go against, like, the professor of anthropics view, right? Because the professor of anthropics is like, everything has evolved for me to exist. But Didactylus is saying, nope, things just happen. What the hell? Yeah. Like, everything's random. Yeah, oh, there's some piece of media, and I'm trying to remember what it is. But it's like, um, I can't remember what it is, but two people in it 
ref- like refer to one person refers to themselves and the other person refers to the first person as like an infinites an infinitesimal speck in an uncaring universe something along those lines mm-hmm. and like that's what it is and didactylos is kind of just like well fuck it shit happens right oh man i was reading a book hold on i actually have something for this okay i was writing about it actually in my dissertation have Ooh. you read the lesson by cadwell turnbull no i have not it is really an interesting book about like an alien, sort of an alien invasion into Earth where these aliens just show up and they're like, hey, we'll like trade you medical technology if you let us have this island in the U.S. Virgin Islands for like five years. We have research to do. But like it's it's kind of a metaphor about colonization. I don't want to get like too far into it because I could talk about this book for a while, but there's one of the things that these aliens really believe is that like they they really believe in survival of the fittest like that okay. their enemy is the universe and what they have to do is fight to survive and like if they survive like the universe only understands strength is what they believe but then this other characters uh who had been on earth for a while like she's an alien but she'd been on earth for a while she le- she says she learns a new lesson And that lesson is the universe didn't care about strength. It didn't care about anything. Indifference looked like malice to creatures with something to lose. And so like this idea of like, if you think the universe is after you, it's because you think the universe cares, but it turns out the universe doesn't care. Yeah. It just is, right? Like it doesn't care how strong or weak you are. It just is. Yeah. So my, the thing that made me laugh... Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things I laughed at in this book, but I think my favorite one is the part where Albert, where Death is asking for feedback on his performance from Albert. And Death says, and I made sure some of them saw me. I know if they are peeping, which is, of course, a reference to uh, A Christmas Carol. Death added proudly. Well done, sir. Yes. Though here's a tip, though. Just ho, ho, ho will do. Don't say cower brief mortals unless you want them to grow up to be money lenders or some such. And just the image of death in a hogfather suit with a beard saying cower brief mortals at children. It's just such a delightful image. I, I laughed quite a bit at it. Just, just ho, ho, ho will do. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic image. Also, like, uh, when Rid Coley pulls the beard off of Death, and he's like, this is a fake beard, and Death is like, no, it's not. And he says, how did you get it to go over your ears? Oh, yeah, skulls don't have ears. Yeah, they don't. So he's like, it must have been very tricky for you. What was something that made you think? I think I kind of touched on what made me think, where it's like the shape of belief, you know, and how we Mm -hmm. as a society kind of ascribe values and shapes onto what's a a lot of the time what's just kind of anthropomorphic anthropomorphizations of like natural forces and such Mm -hmm. yeah and so like you know i don't know like the endless are a good example you know those seven kind of fundamental forces of the universe or death in this book uh you know they're kind of uncaring forces or unknowable forces in some cases even lovecraft kind of gets into that but the fact that there's like a shape of belief that needs to be filled and when one when one god kind of 
is taken out of a pantheon, then a bunch of other smaller gods will rise up to... I mean, that's kind of a thing that, that you've seen in practice throughout history, where, like, a dominant religion will be swayed, and so then a lot of, like, smaller cult of personalities will happen. You know, like, like Mithras in, um, back in the Roman times was that kind of deal. Yeah. Yeah, and I like this idea, too, that, like, by giving them a shape, we change them. Like, like death defines us, but, like, we also define death. Yeah. That kind of goes with the thing that made me think, uh, which is at the very end of the book, where it's kind of, it goes along with what we were saying earlier about Susan saying, like, so the sun really wouldn't have come up. And he says, a mere ball of flaming gas would have illuminated the world. And you're saying humans need fantasies to make life bearable. Really? As if it were some kind of pink pill? No. Humans need fantasy to be human, to be the place where the falling angel meets the rising ape. Tooth fairies? Hog fathers? Little? Yes. As practice, you have to start out learning to believe the little lies, so we can believe the big ones? Yes. Justice. Mercy. Duty. That kind of thing. They're not the same at all. You think so? Then take the universe and grind it down to the finest powder and sieve it through the finest sieve and then show me one atom of justice, one molecule of mercy. And yet, death waved a hand. And yet you act as if there's some ideal order in the world, as if there's some some rightness in the universe by which it must be judged. Yes, but people have got to believe that or what's the point? My point exactly. I loved that scene. I thought that was really interesting the way that death says like, no, like things like justice and mercy don't exist in the universe. The universe does not care about fairness or duty or any of those things. They are things that humans have created in order to understand the universe, to make the universe livable. And yeah. so then he connects like things like the hog father to that, like children start out believing in the hog father. So later they'll believe in things like justice and mercy. Yeah, and I think that go like that goes right back to the very first book we read for this, you know, Mort, where he tells Mort, "There's no, there's no fairness, there's no justice, there's just him." Mm-hmm. Like morality, yeah. morality is ju- it's just a social construct we've created. Like animals don't abide by it, right? And like Susan points out that that doesn't mean it's not important. Like life is not worth living without those kinds of constructs but the fact is is that they're still human made right like yeah it's not something you're just gonna see in the universe it doesn't exist it's not plato's forms like plato plato said that you know everything actually does exist in like some kind of unknowable form but terry pratchett is saying no like you can't find you will not find that anywhere in the universe just inside people's heads yeah so in our next episode Ankh morpork goes to war in jingo Ooh. Where can people find you online and on their headphones, Nigel? You can find me, uh, you can find my shows, Hyperfixations and Archive Admirers, wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can find me mainly on Twitter at SpicyNigel, where. What have I been doing recently? I'm trying to load my Twitter. I've been continuing my countdown to Avatar 2. It's currently 166 days until Avatar 2 comes out. Didn't you tweet about o- the Oasis Funko Pop? I did, yeah. I thought it was very funny. They Funko are releasing Nolan Liam Gallagher Funko Pops, but they announced them in one post, so I said, 
that they uh <laughs> that if you buy these together they have to send them to you separately. I just want you to know that I read that to Sam last night and she cackled. She thought that was so funny. Sam showed me the Sam showed me the video about the wind in the willows that she said you thought I would like. Oh, yeah. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> that was pretty good too. Yeah, what else have I tweeted? I tweeted out wonder does my dog support gay rights? Still, jury's still out on that one. Public service announcement: the first of July is the first day of Gay Wrath Month, so party accordingly. <laughs> and a picture of some socks that would be Achilles' worst nightmare. I I am actually looking at those socks right now. They are black with very colorful heels. I understand. I understand where you're coming from on that one. Where can we find you, Tessa? You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. You can also find me on my other podcast, Monkey Off My Backlog. That's at Monkey Backlog. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Read us out, Nigel. The beggars, despite being too disreputable even to belong to the beggars' guild, lived quite well by their own low standards. This was generally by careful application of the certainty principle. People would give them all sorts of things if they were certain to go away. A few minutes later, they wandered off again, pushing a happy Arnold, who was surrounded by hastily wrapped packages. People can be so kind, said the duckman. Millennium hand and shrimp. Arnold started to investigate the charitable donations as they maneuvered his trolley through the slush and drifts. Tastes sort of familiar, he said. Familiar like what? Like mud and old boots. Gone, that's posh grub, that is. Yeah, yeah. Arnold chewed for a while. You don't think we've become posh all of a sudden? Dunno, you posh, Ron. Bugger it. Yep, sounds posh to me. The snow began to settle gently on the river Ankh. Still, Happy New Year, Arnold. Happy New Year, duck man. And your duck. What duck? Happy New Year, Henry. Happy New Year, Ron. Bugger him. And God bless us, everyone, said Arnold sideways. The curtain of snow hid them from view. Which god? Dunno. What have you got? Duck man? Yes, Henry? You know that stalled ox you mentioned? Yes, Henry. How come it stalled? Run out of grass or something? Uh, it was more of a figure of speech, Henry. Not an ox. Not... Exactly. What I meant was, and then there was only the snow. After a while, it began to melt in the sun. The end.